Standing six feet tall by age 12, that's 180 centimeters for our metric listeners, his height made him stand out. It was something that he was self-conscious about, but his ability to pen a story soon became the focal point surrounding him. From then on, there was no stopping. Douglas Adams would go on to become the only student ever to be awarded a 10 out of 10 by Halford for creative writing, a feat he remembered for the rest of his life, particularly when facing writer's block. His writing skills were quite evident. Now, despite the hard times that would meet him in the future, he pushed on. Now he is remembered as one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time. Of course, it wasn't that easy, though. Many years later, Douglas confessed that he had told the story of getting the idea for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy so often that he could no longer recall whether it had happened the way he said it happened, or whether he was just remembering his many retellings, in which case he would have to trust himself and accept that at some point his original account had a basis in fact. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, hitchhikers, and galaxies. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and today we are exploring Douglas Adams and his legacy-defining work of words, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. There's a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. And there is another theory which states that this has already happened. End quote. The bare bones of the anecdote that make up the origin story of the concept that would become the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is as follows. Hitching around Europe in the summer of 1971, between school and university, with a guitar full of yearning, sap and whatnot rising, looking for adventure, Douglas arrives in Innsbruck, Austria. There he consumes a bit too much of that sneaky Austrian beer. This led him to lying in a field looking at the stars. Maybe most important of all in his bag is a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe by Ken Welsh. Hmm, thinks Adams. Someone ought to write that book on a larger scale, he thinks. It comes to him. Eureka! I know. The whole galaxy. A guide to the galaxy. This is what someone should write. He always claimed, however, that he never imagined that he would be the one to write it. Fast forward to February 4, 1977, when Douglas was set to have lunch with Simon Brett, then a light entertainment producer within radio. Now, Adams had promised the producer three ideas. Later, Simon wasn't able to recall two of the ideas, and similarly, Adams claimed that neither could he. The one both could remember, however, was a comedic science fiction idea. 
Now, this idea had its start as the ends of the Earth, but soon would become the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Simon thought it was a great idea. Upon sharing it with others at the radio station, the sentiment was mutual. Now, Simon remembers in particular one of his senior colleagues, a man called Con Mahoney, asking him, Is this funny? Brett assured him it was indeed funny. And just like that, Adams was on his way. On March 1st, 1977, three weeks after Douglas's lunch with Simon, the BBC radio station approved the making of a pilot for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, six months would roll by, however, before a full commitment was made to the whole series. In any case, Douglas was thrilled to get the commission and his morale received a big boost. He was still hard up, however, and still living with his parents. With the long pause between the pilot and approving the series, the BBC essentially paid him £1,000 for those six months. But, on the bright side, at least he had a real project and the promise of income, as well as friendly faces in London. Still living with his parents, 25-year-old Adams was pampered by his mother, who brought him cups of tea and peanut butter sandwiches for which he had a particular weakness. Wait, what? Peanut butter? No jelly? No jam? Spoken as one born and raised in the USA, of course. <laughs> but anyway, his mother's cups of tea inspired one of his inventions— the infinite improbability drive, which uses tea as a Brownian motion generator. Now, the hero of the book, Arthur Dent, is saved by it, and to quote the book, he no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. Now, to further stress Adam's love for tea and how serious he took the matter, he wrote an uncharacteristically finger-wagging essay aimed at improving the American quality of life and is therefore, hopefully, forgivable. Now, about how to make the perfect cup of tea, he wrote, Warm the teapot well. Spoon in an adequate supply of tea, preferably loose, but bags will do. Pour in rollingly boiling water. Infuse properly. Pour the milk into the cup first, okay? Touché. You have your tea, and I have my peanut butter and jelly. Now all is even. He goes on to point out that it is not considered socially correct to put the milk in first, but on the other hand, he joked, that in England it is generally considered socially incorrect to know things or think about things. Okay. As Arthur Dent is blown uncontrollably around the galaxy in the company of someone infinitely more hip than he is, he devotes much of his time to looking for a decent cup of tea, a drink often accorded miraculous powers of comfort by Brits in adversity. Had your leg amputated? Ship torpedoed? Ah, a nice cup of tea will soon put you right. <laughs> Indeed, there is something pathetic about Arthur, a bewildered young-slash-old man in his dressing gown, his entire world wiped out behind him in an unnecessary cock-up whose ambition is limited to finding a hot herbal infusion. Case in point, Arthur nearly causes his own death and that of his companions 
by rhetorically asking Eddie, the shipboard computer with the irritating primarily American personality, why Eddie thought that he, Arthur, wanted a cup of tea. The computer, grimly literal-minded as only a machine can be, devotes more and more processing power to the question, imperiling them all. Tea or no tea, in 1977, things were distinctly looking up for Douglas. He had his Doctor Who episodes to write and supportive friends in town. Finally, he even had a real job. He was delighted, to begin with at least. This job was the world's lowliest job in radio as a producer, so much so that even the janitors could boss him around. But it was still a job, and he was on the staff, and not just a freelance contract. Well, to do their job, producers need to get a lot of people together, charm them, organize them, and bully them with a judicious mixture of tact and steel, simultaneously boosting their egos and sparking their creativity. The task was often to turn a collection of disparate and sometimes highly strong individuals into a team. Now, this is a highly difficult task within itself. Now, add to that, this task did not serve to Adam's strengths. He was too vulnerable to cope well with stress, and despite being a social animal with a need for company and stimulation, as a creator, he preferred solitary. Whatever his virtues as a radio producer in the radio entertainment department were, he did not stay in it for very long. Finally, at the end of August 1977, the BBC approved the series. Thus, with that green light, his Doctor Who commissions, and his job as a producer, it seemed like the perfect time to get himself an agent. Before Douglas Adams did it, very few had combined science fiction and comedy. Even fewer had done it successfully. He loved philosophical ideas and had a natural grasp of them, but he knew that plunking them unadorned into the text would induce instant tedium followed by an intense backlash. For instance, he describes the creator of the universe as a curmudgeon with a disagreeable cat and a mucky shed. This decrepit old entity has lost all confidence that the universe actually exists because his sense of computation could be mixing up things and making mistakes. It's a nightmarishly solipsistic idea that implies that you cannot know for sure if anything is real. Philosophical notions described in this way could get pretty dull. Now, his genius was to sneak them into the reader's brain, camouflaged as a series of well-built jokes. It is this serious underpinning of dazzling notions and intellect that made Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy so extraordinary. He spoke to the reader directly, even and especially to readers unfamiliar with the conventions of response that come from being a regular consumer of literature. All of these factors would help make it the success that it is still to this day. The pilot for the series was recorded in the BBC's large West London Paris studio in June 1977. 
Simon Brett was the producer of the pilot, with Jeffrey Perkins taking over for the rest of the series. A legend has it that Perkins once told Adams that he had no idea what he was doing, to which Adams answered, that's all right, neither do I. One of Perkins's strengths was that he was confident enough about his own humor and sense of narrative construction to steer Adams in the right direction when things got too incoherent. Adams set about writing the Hitchhiker's radio series in a tremendous spasm of creativity. And we're going to have a little fun here and make a comparison. With today's computer technology, perhaps it's nearly impossible to imagine the discipline connected to the use of a typewriter. It was quicker than longhand, sure, and in most cases more legible, but it was not any more flexible. No copy and paste, no scrolling up the screen to add an afterthought or transpose a sentence so the rhythm was better. Every single word had to be pounded onto paper, in a gruel manner at times. Then the whole page had to be clean typed after numerous notes and comments were added to the past draft not to mention technical problems that could and would occur. This entire process was necessary after any spurt of inspiration. It is interesting, though in the light of later events hardly surprising, that when Adams wrote the first novel of Hitchhikers based on the radio scripts, he did not rely on outside contributions at all. In his introduction to the compendium of the trilogy, in four parts, published by Pan in 1992, Adams makes it clear that his first book was a substantially expanded novel version of episodes one to four of the radio series, and that he did not use any material from the episodes from which he had co-written with John Lloyd. While taking a glimpse into his methodology, here's a list of things that accompanied him into the writing room. First, there was a large amount of Coke. The drink, that is. <laughs> a typewriter, several reams of A4 paper, a gramophone, and Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush to put him in the right frame of mind. He played that record until the needle wore out. Now, characteristically, he delivers late. In his introduction to the compendium volumes of the Hitchhiker's novels, he describes his process like this. After a lot of procrastination and hiding and inventing excuses and having baths, I managed to get two-thirds of it done. At this point, they said, very pleasantly and politely, that I had already passed ten deadlines, so would I please finish the page I was on and let them have the damn thing. Meanwhile, Adams was busy trying to write the second series and was also writing and script-editing Doctor Who. He was finding that, while it was very pleasant to have his own radio series, especially one that somebody wrote in to say that they heard, it didn't exactly buy one lunch. The first novel judders to a halt with every narrative strand in suspension. At the time, he imagined, naively as it may have been, that this abrupt finish was a deliberate literary device, a kind of playful way to end the first book. Also, the final page, on which the characters set off to the restaurant at the end of the universe, looked like a shameless means of whetting the market's appetite for a sequel. But no, Pan's fiction editors Carolyn Oopshire and Sonny Mehta had simply become annoyed by being strung along by Adams. 
who was not guilty of deliberate lies about delivery, more rather optimistic and sincere self-deception. Don't Panic, the official Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy Companion by Neil Gaiman reports that Pan executives spoke with Adams along these lines. How much have you done? Adams told them, and they said, Oh dear, well, it will have to do. We'll send somebody to collect it. Editor Carolyn Upshur does not remember such a conversation, and it would go against any publisher's grain to publish something unfinished. It's more likely that Adams estimated that he would have rounded the story off more satisfactorily by the time the motorcycle messenger arrived, but he hadn't. In the end, of course, it was published with the open-ended ending. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was published on October 12, 1979, as a pan-original, priced at 80 pence with an initial run of 60,000 copies. Now, these copies disappeared instantly. It was reprinted and then reprinted again, this third time at 85 pence apiece. The first 100,000 copies flew off the shelves in only four weeks, leading to a quarter of a million copies being sold within three months. Number one in the Sunday Times paperback bestseller list since its publication. Despite incredible numbers, John Lloyd and reviewers agreed that Adam's style was too similar to that of Kurt Vonnegut. The comparison is perhaps justified given that Adams and Vonnegut do have much in common. Vonnegut is less explicitly comic, more darkly sardonic, and more artful about narrative construction. Both writers do, however, have a sense of the absurd, though Adams is more, one can say, cosmic. Comparisons can go on and on, but one thing that's widely noted about both authors is that they have mastered an immediate and conversational style that is easy to read. And we at House of Words did a feature on Kurt Vonnegut and his book Slaughterhouse-Five, which you can learn more about on House of Words episode 44. Check both authors out, and you can decide how similar or dissimilar they are to you. Interestingly enough, Douglas Adams' novelization of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was not the first reincarnation of the radio series. Ken Campbell of the Science Fiction Theater of Liverpool had heard the series on radio and immediately thought it would do well on the stage. He was very quick off the mark and sought out Jill Foster to license the dramatization rights. Campbell's version was to be the first of many theatrical versions of the series that continue to this day. Including the amateur productions, these stagings must number somewhere in the hundreds by now. As usual, let me leave you with a quote from the Roamer of Galaxies himself. This one being a note he wrote to himself to help him keep going whenever he felt it difficult to find inspiration. Writing isn't so bad, really, when you get through the worry. Forget about the worry. Just press on. Don't be embarrassed about the bad bits. Don't strain at them. Give yourself time. You can come back and do it again in the light of what you discover about the story later on. It's better to have pages and pages of material to work with and off and maybe find an unexpected shape in that you can then craft and put to good use rather than one manically reworked paragraph or sentence. But writing 
can be good. You attack it. Don't let it attack you. You can get pleasure out of it. You can certainly do very well for yourself with it. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. <laughs>